Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Katie Stallard, who's a senior editor at The New Statesman and previously a correspondent for Sky News in China and Russia, as well as being a non-resident fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., among many other things. And she'll be talking about her new book, Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia and North Korea which was published in 2022, just a few weeks ago, in fact, uh, by Oxford University Press. Few states consistently occupy more column inches in Western media today than China, Russia, and North Korea, with each seeming in their own way to present a challenge to the US-led global order, if indeed you can still call it an order at this stage. Of course, no shortage of attention has been paid in recent weeks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but coverage of this catastrophe still competes with reporting on Beijing's shifting policies in Hong Kong and Pyongyang's latest missile launches, to name just a couple of examples. But if an atmosphere of menace or crisis seems to surround these states' relations with the West in the present day, then it's just as important that the challenge they pose is a historical as well as a contemporary one. History, of course, matters to any state, but as Katie Stellard shows in Dancing on Bones, today's Chinese, Russian and North Korean leaderships have gone to specific lengths to shape historical narratives in order to secure their grip on power. Based on years of reporting and research from all of these places, Stallard mixes analysis of political events in each country over the past 70 years or so with first-hand accounts of her own interviews and reportage, painting a vivid picture of how in each place the past is made to serve the present, as Mao Zedong put it. Juggling multiple timeframes in three different locations is no easy task, But this accessibly written book manages this with aplomb, and in doing so sheds light on connections between these important countries, which go well beyond generalized perceptions of them as revisionist powers. Uh, But the author is here to say more about all of these crucial topics. So I'll say Katie Stellard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to speak to you. Well, great to read a book uh, on uh, probably the three countries that I'm most interested in myself too. So uh, as a self-indulgence exercise, also very gratifying. Um, but this obviously has nothing to do with me. So I'll start by asking you about your background, how you became interested in these places in general, and then more specifically uh, in the relationship uh, in each of them between history and power. Well, so I'm originally from the, the far northeast of, of Scotland, and it probably wasn't a natural path from there to, to Russia and China. But my my mother had studied Russian at university, and I grew up hearing stories about her own travels there back in the days of the Soviet Union, traveling through Checkpoint Charlie in, in a minibus and, and uh, being rushed to the front of the line to, to see Lenin in Red Square. So I, I had a kind of a, a long running interest um, in Russia. And I was very fortunate to join uh, Sky News um, in London as a reporter and really set about um, trying to trying to chart a path from from there to, to Russia. I was very keen um, to to 
get the chance to to live and and, and report from from Moscow, um, which, which I was very uh, fortunate to to get the role there in in two thousand and twelve. I spent around three years um, reporting in Russia for Sky News. I, I was based in Moscow, but covering the wider region, um, and significantly for our purposes, that that included the the period of of the I guess what we're now would call the first war in Ukraine. Um, beginning in, in 2014. So to so spend a lot of time traveling backwards and forwards between Russia and Ukraine, and then from there moved to, to China in the uh, mid 2015, um, and spent another uh, three years re- reporting from, from Beijing, where I also um, picked up um, the, the, the beat covering, covering North Korea. So I, I reported pretty extensively from, from on North Korea over the next three, three years, and then ultimately got the chance to, to travel there and report um, on the on the ground too. So a sort of a combination of um, personal interest, uh, luck, opportunity um, has, has given me the chance to, to live and work and, and report from from these three, um, as, as you say, very very consequential um, uh, and, and countries that are that are always always in our headlines for for one reason or another. Right, and I mean, just on that, I mean, given that they're places that are so often connected, uh, often, you know, in a way that maybe doesn't reflect as deeply as, as you have on the sort of profound links between them, um, I just wonder, in a, in a large media organisation like Sky or any other, is there a sense that someone who's reported from Russia will be well-suited to going to China as well? Is there is, Does that connection exist institutionally or was this something that was more just your own sort of preference and chance kind of thing? I think there's certainly a, a sense that if you can operate in one, you can probably operate in, in another. Um, so I think I think there's both, you know, there's the there's the sort of nuts and bolts of, of reporting and, and journalism and, and some of the some of the factors you're dealing with in in Russia are similar for China. So in terms of, you know, surveillance security concerns um it being very difficult to to conduct interviews um and and you know working within a, a repressive regime is is you know is something that i had experience in in russia and, and so i guess made them think i could i could cope with it in, in china but then i think also there you know as you know looking at these countries i think once you start to look at the at the history and understand the importance of you know Leninist political systems, for instance, um, there are links between these countries um, and and their and their past that are that are beyond the sort of grouping that we tend to see now in terms of being at the top of of threats to to Western and, and United States um, security. Though those links existed long before we started. Um, grouping them together as, as this sort of modern day axis. Sure. Yeah. No, there's an awful lot to plumb into going back. Uh, well, even, even beyond the, the already impressive scope of time that you bring into this book. Um, but on the book then, um, how did the idea of, of writing this book kind of come out of your experiences in these places? I mean, it was a gradual process, but I think looking back now, there were, there are a few key moments um, that, really led to this so the first was right back in 2014 and it's actually what I what I start the book with this in in the introduction is the experience of being on the ground in in Ukraine after the Maidan revolution and traveling through southern Ukraine towards Crimea where at the time all we knew was that these um, little green men is what people were calling them they, they were Russian forces but they'd taken off their insignia had taken control of airports and key infrastructure and so driving was the only way to get there. And when we came 
close to, to Crimea, um, very late at night, we were stopped at this um, checkpoint, which had just gone up by, by you know local guys in camouflage gear and masks with, with guns who were stopping all the cars and, and checking them. And the reason that they gave for what, what was happening was was grounded in the, the history of the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War, as it's called in Russia. So the first thing that these guys were were, were telling me was, you know, this is the land of our, our ancestors fought during the Great Patriotic War. Now fascists and Nazis are on the rise again, and, and we're here to show that that's not going to work and to stand against them. So right from the early days of that conflict, the war just felt like it was very present. People wore the orange and black ribbon of St. George um, to identify themselves on, on the on the separatist side and it, it was fascinating to me to see just how consequential those historical narratives were and how they seem to be driving you know you'd come to checkpoints in in a rural part of, of eastern Ukraine and there'd be a picture a poster of Stalin there. Like the, the the symbols from that from that past war and from the Soviet past were really present in that in that current conflict. And then moving to, to China, one of the first major assignments I did there was this um, Victory Day parade in September 2015 to mark the anniversary of the end of the war, which is something that happens um, in Russia and which looked like it was you know, a long-held tradition in China too, but, but wasn't. It was the first time it had ever been held. So looking at those two, those two incidents together, I felt like there were echoes of, of the same story in, in both countries. And I just became really fascinated in well, how does the history of these past wars play into current day politics here? How are those in power manipulating, harnessing the story of, of these wars? And, and what is the version of history that you would learn if you grew up in, in these countries? And how, how would that make you, you see the world? So I think those were the two sort of key points that got me really hooked um, on this idea. And then once I started to also cover North Korea and I saw how history was being used there, I thought, well, if, I, you know, if I'm serious at looking at how autocrats use history and manipulate history, North Korea is just you know, the nth degree example of this. So I, so I, should, so I should try and look at, at North Korea too. So it was logistically a, a vast and probably totally unadvisable um, undertaking to try and to try and look at, at all three countries but I really felt there are gradations of the same story here and there are we can learn from from looking at all three rather than looking at, at, at any one on its own as a sort of exceptional example that, that has no compatriots mm. well that leads very naturally on to the kind of next question I guess which draws us back to this comparison this grouping of these these places together often uh, as we've already said, in a sort of non-analytical way, perhaps. Um, so what is it about the continuities or similarities that makes you sort of see those as being uh, worthy of, uh, A, comparison between them, and then B, highlighting as something specific that is different to how any state, any political community or body might, you know, use history or draw on what, you know, we might think of as a, a usable past, right, to use that term. Um, how is how are how are these places different, or at least uh, specific and similar enough to merit study together? Yes, I think it's important to be to be clear right at the outset that the you know, the impulse to do this and to manipulate history in this way is 
by no means limited to autocrats. I think we can all think of plenty of democratically elected leaders who um, draw on the past in a in a very selective manner to to serve their own political purposes, and that's because it it, it works. I mean, the, these these stories resonate; they rally popular support. So, if you are somebody who is interested in getting or keeping power then of course you would try to harness the power of the past. But the, the point I come out to in the book is that we as citizens should be very wary of that and of how these narratives are, are being mobilized because first and foremost, they're being used to serve those in power and entrench existing political systems rather than to, to actually address the, the issues of, of the country and to serve us individually um, as citizens. With, the, with these three countries, what really struck me studying them in depth was the degree to which that sort of official version of history was really becoming the only, certainly the only version of history you could voice publicly. I think, you know, when I first started the book, there was a a greater degree of separation between the three in terms of the information environment. So in, in Russia, for instance, you know, 2015, 2016, there were still independent media outlets, um, albeit under under growing pressure in recent years. Internet access was was relatively free. Um, You know, you could, if you were interested, find information that that contradicted what you were seeing on on Russian state television news. So there there were differences in the degree of control that the the respective regimes had, but, but those have become more similar over time so the the you know access to to the to alternative sources of news alternative information in russia has has really been dramatically shut down um over the over the course of the, the last 12 months um in particular but i think it was really wanting to understand so these are you know there are three countries that i was personally reporting about um but that were were constantly in our headlines um and seem to be we talk a lot about these countries, but I felt we weren't always doing a great job of understanding um, what was actually happening in these countries with any degree of, of nuance um, or detail. So I wanted to sort of take these sort of almost caricatures um, of strongman leaders that, that we see on the news and try to understand how does this work in, in practice? Like, how are they using how do they use the past? What are the stories that they tell? What is the case they make for why they should be in power and why they should build up these weapons programs, why, why their actions are acceptable? So I wanted to sort of, I guess, with, with my sort of reporting hat on, you know, I, I felt like we were, we were missing a, a really an important story of what is actually happening inside these countries and what role is history and specifically the role of of the, the history of past wars playing in their contemporary politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, we'll jump into the specificities of you know some of those developments uh, in a second. I guess one final question though that just you know slightly uh, relates to that uh, to that question about comparisons outside uh, just these three. But um, I, I guess I'd be curious as well uh, while we're still in the framing stage of <laughs> thinking about this whether you came to think any differently about. Uh, history as as you had learned or I mean I guess uh, you know not to over personalize it we grew up on the same island but in parts of of it which maybe have their own respective different uh, uh, approaches to history and indeed uh, 
also lots of bits of history that don't get talked about in either <laughs> place. So did you come to see uh, Scottish or British or I guess broadly maybe even uh, you know, post-war Western history in any diff- in any different way as a result of studying these these things. Yeah, did. I remember going around a, a museum in in Glasgow um, during a visit back from China. So this was probably I don't know twenty twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, and being really struck by how much um, it was a how much the, the history of British colonialism just wasn't there. How much it should just seemed to be to be skipped over. I think I've become really sensitive working on the book to how all how all of us are are looking in it in a very very selective way um at the past and to particularly so I'm, I'm now based um in the united states seeing the arguments here over you know which parts of the past should we remember and should we or shouldn't we um look at and center the darker aspects of the past having spent so many years focusing on, on how autocrats use history I just I find I want to you know, shake people <laughs> by, by the by, by the lapels and say no no you know yes we should absolutely look at, at all of the difficult aspects of history it's not in our interests to to gloss over this and, and turn the past into this kind of halcyon nostalgic sort of fuzzy image of, of a time when, when when things were great you know that's what autocrats do um, and, and those of us who have leaders we can hold accountable should you know, should demand that they that they don't do that, and that we do teach children a, a more nuanced, and more a more balanced, and a more comprehensive um, picture picture of the past, rather than sort of centering our our own our own heroism. Mm, mm. No, well, absolutely. I mean, we can uh, maybe return to that full circle if uh, if we have time to reflect on it in the end, uh, as far as kind of outlook uh, looking forward is concerned too. But um, I'll I'll start then uh, by you know kind of jumping into the the kind of main body of the book. Um, and the chapters are divided uh, with these very kind of pithy titles that identify, I guess, a lot of the main uh, key dimensions to uh, this um, historical or this, this mobilization of history, I should say, in each place. Uh, so, I mean, just to go through them very quickly, you have myth, victory, enemies, memory, victims, truth, lies, control, heroes, patriots, and power. Um, and those kind of, I guess, uh, I mean, it's 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 amazing how deftly you move between uh, these different locations, as I already mentioned in the introduction. Um, but we'll start perhaps with the sort of mythological aspects of uh, of, of the histories that are uh, discussed in each of these places, uh, and maybe the most mythical of all, or, or as you've said, uh, the um, North Korean case is a sort of nth degree study in some of these processes. So uh, you open chapter one discussing uh, kind of the foundation myth, I guess of of North Korea. Could you say something, you know, just specifically about the content of that, how you came to, as you came to be familiar with it and how it's changed over time? Yeah, I mean, this was something that I really learned by reporting on North Korea and looking at, I mean, primarily what I was covering was was the weapons tests. So we would tend to to focus on North Korea when they were testing a new nuclear weapon or, or launching a ballistic missile. And when you start to look at the speeches that Kim Jong-un, the current leader, gives and the way this is reported, um, it, it's all presented as, as defensive. And, it, and it's all about how you know the country is, is threatened by the, the hostile policy of, of the United States and it needs to build up its, its strength and its nuclear deterrent, the, the treasured sword of the nuclear program, as, as it's called there, in order to be able to defend itself. So I wanted to look at... 
what what are they referring to and how do they what is the case they make to citizens about about why they need these these weapons and it, it turns out it's really i mean large parts of it are, are entirely made up um so there's, there's the, the foundation myth that i talk about in in the first chapter is around kim il sung um the 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 first leader and how he came to power now it's there are elements of truth um, in the story, as, as there are in all in all good propaganda. Um, so he he genuinely was a, a, a guerrilla fighter who who fought against um, Japanese colonial rule um, of the Korean Peninsula, but but crucially not not on the Korean Peninsula. Um, during the nineteen thirties, he he joined a, a guerrilla band in in Manchuria in northeast China, and he he he, he genuinely did he did fight. Um, and he he was a he was a guerrilla commander, but what he didn't do um, was was liberate the Korean Peninsula from from Japanese rule, which he now um, that's what the regime claims he did. Um, the the story has really changed over time. So in the very early years of, of the founding of North Korea, when the peninsula was divided between North and South, and the Soviets who were um, in control of the, or um, I guess setting up the new regime um, in the north selected Kim Il-sung uh, as their leader and said about sort of seeding a heroic backstory around him um, uh, he ha- was in the Soviet Union at the time so he had he had fought in Manchuria but then he'd been forced across the border um, into the into the Soviet Union and he didn't return to um, North Korea or the Korean Peninsula at all until after the defeat of Japan in the Second World War and and Japan had, had ceded control of Korea. So at, at the start, in the very early days, the, the story that was told was that Kim uh, as, assisted the, the Soviet forces, that Kim fought bravely as a Japanese partisan. And then following the, the Soviet defeat uh, of Japan, he he became the, the leader of North Korea. But, but over time, and he actually, he asks... Um, he there there is a record of him asking one of the soviet officers could they please write the korean partisans back into the liberation story they want to be able to show that they contributed to to this great victory and and the soviets refuse but over time the story starts to change so in the early days the the soviet army's in the lead kim's um, guerrilla partisans are, are are in the rear over the decades, it becomes so that the, you know the Koreans are in the lead, and now the the Soviet army is is supporting them. And and now, as the story goes, it's basically just Kim Il Sung and his um, Korean People's Revolutionary Army, which there's no evidence to suggest that that organization ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, that that um, you know stages this this triumphant return to the Korean Peninsula, vanquishes Japan, liberates the country, and the land erupts into into cheers and joy at, at Kim Il Sung's. Um, spectacular leadership and, and military victory. So I guess it, it all comes back to this first idea that Kim Il-sung personally secured um, North Korea's freedom and in fact the entire Korean Peninsula's freedom from, from Japanese rule. So he's he's a, a great war hero to which people um, owe, owe their freedom. But then they've tacked onto the, onto the end of this um, that five years later, what, what we would know as, as the Korean War, what they call the Fatherland Liberation War, that North Korea was attacked, um, they claim, by by the United States and, and South Korea, and Kim uh, once again was able to to wage a, a remarkable struggle, repel the aggressors, and, and secure North Korea's um, freedom once again. So he's sort of held up as this great mythical commander um, who who 
saves the country twice in a decade, brings these great empires, first Japan and then the United States, to their knees and, and secures the secures the happy life of, of of North Korea, which you know, as I say, there are, there are elements of truth in it, but but there's probably more fiction um, than truth. So yeah, this is a really interesting moment where you uh, identify a connection that exists, you know, not only sort of isomorphically, if you like, between uh, the processes at play uh, in each country, but actual kinetic or historical links between um, different parties, different uh, events, and this fading of the Soviet role or fading of acknowledgement of the Soviet role over time is very interesting. You also document sort of uh, observers of this at the time, you know, during uh, the, uh, I guess, uh, 60s, 70s, including from, from Soviet Union, from Eastern Europe, um, noticing that the Kim cult was kind of ascendant. Um, so those links are, are important. And another one, of course, is uh, China's role in, in that Korean War. That's another you know, important uh, direct connection. So moving on uh, into uh, Chapter 2, uh, which sort of begins with more of a focus on China and shifting, again, shifting uh, kind of uh, accounts of the, the victory in the anti-Japanese war in particular, um, I mean, often what you're telling here is a history of histories, if you like, right? How, how history itself has been narrated and re-narrated. Um, so could you say uh, something more about the sort of parallel uh, changes in how China's war records uh, has been remembered and told uh, more recently over time? Yeah, I think one of the things that was really striking to me looking at, at both Russia and China was how much this story has changed. I think looking at them now and the way these these wars are commemorated is, e- is easy to assume it has always been like that, that every year from 1945, this has been the case. But it, it, in both Russia and China, and China, it took the, the longest time for this story to, to reemerge. Actually, the, the initial response to the war um, by the by the Communist Party was to play it down. Um, so I mean, the 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 key detail, which I'm, I'm sure most most listeners w- will be aware, of, is that the, you know the Communist Party wasn't in power at the time. It was the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai Shek who was who was the leader of China at, at at the end of the war, and it was the it was the KMT that did the majority of the fighting and dying in that war. The the Communist Party. Were, were I think they describe themselves now as fighting on the back front line, um, but but really they were they were in the Yan'an base, um, and and you know aside from the early part of the war, it w- was primarily not not the communist soldiers um, who who were fighting on on the front lines of this. So when Mao Zedong first came to first came to power in 1949, he really had very little interest in remembering and and certainly in centering. The experience of of the what what we would know as the Second World War. In Chiang Kai Shek was still alive. He was on Taiwan. He was um, they feared he would he was preparing to to strike back against the mainland. So he, he didn't want to in any way give him credit for for the the victory in the war or or remember um, too much about the experience of the war. He wanted to focus on his on his own. Revolution and so, so the wartime history just isn't. I think one of the things you come to to realize looking around Chinese cities is that it, it's not part of the the memorial landscape. Just isn't there in the same way that it that it is in in many countries in the West or or now in Russia. You know, there there is no central war memorial in 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 Beijing. It just it, it wasn't built. Um, 
and the memorial that that was built um, in in Chongqing to the um, to the to the victory in the war was repurposed post nineteen forty nine and became known as the Liberation Monument and was um, co opted to to serve the to memorialize um, Mao's revolution. So th- the wartime history just yeah it, it wasn't central now then in the way that it that it is now, and it wasn't really until after. Mao's death in the in in 1976 and and really the 1980s when this story really came to be to be re-examined um, that it that it a, a more um, a more representative story of the war could be could be told and that the that the KMT's role could be could be acknowledged and with that once you acknowledge the KMT's role then you can talk about all of the great battles that were fought in China you can talk about the horrors you know the atrocities such as such as the Nanjing massacre you know the parts of the war that were fought by the KMT and on KMT controlled territory once they came back into the broader story of the war in in the 1980s it, it became an all nation war of resistance was how they described it and it and it could be something that that was much more was much more prominent a much more important part of the country's history once again but, but that really wasn't the case for 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 decades and decades um the wartime history was kind of set set aside um and the focus was really on on Mao his revolution and and on the Korean war right and you have some great kind of personal reflections on interviews with with people documenting the kind of personal level uh, implications of this shift in and focus right if if it was earlier a sort of class struggle or a struggle between communist and nationalist parties that was stressed uh, then certain people were heroes within that narrative and certain people were villains and then later as the narrative changes then other people become heroes and and villains or, or martyrs and uh, and traitors or however it's framed and and you know people have had their own relatives and their own kind of um uh, family connections you know both condemned and then rehabilitated by turns, uh, <laughs> depending on what's going on. So that's where some of that very vivid on the ground uh, reporting kind of comes into play uh, very effectively. Yeah, that, if I can just interject on that, that, that one of the one of the most important experiences of, of the researching of the book for me was getting to know this this woman in, in Shanghai whose whose relative whose whose grandfather had fought and died for the for the KMT and who had suffered terribly during during the early years of, of, of her life because she was told that her grandfather was a counter-revolutionary because he was the KMT that the family you know she grew up being told not not to talk about him you know she she knew broadly that he had died in the war but she wasn't allowed to say any more than that um, her family really suffered in, in the cultural revolution but as the story of the war has changed so has the story of her grandfather he was formally rehabilitated um, in in 1985 and recognized as a martyr in the war and as the wartime history there has become more central you know she she recounted the going to going to watch a memorial being unveiled to her grandfather being put up in a in a five star hotel and faded by local officials and and receiving a, a posthumous medal for him. So it's, it, I think sometimes these stories can seem quite quite abstract um, and that they you know they they concern primarily the, the history books, um, but they really change real real lives. And in, in the case of, of of this lady Zhao Yan meant she could now, you know, she she now has a, a prominent picture of her grandfather posted up in her in her shop. She likes to talk to to everybody about him, who he was, how he died, and, and to remember him as, as a hero. So she's sort of lived through these these changes to the to the historical narrative. 
Mm. It reminded me, I guess, in a different context of some of the people I've spoken to in the borderlands between China and North Korea, ethnically Korean uh, Chinese citizens, uh, some of whose you know ancestors participated in the Korean War on the Chinese side. Uh, and as such, initially, with celebration of victory in the Korean War as, uh, along the Kim Il-sung lines, were uh, fated as martyrs or as heroes of that war. Then during the Cultural Revolution, that experience was stigmatized because it was foreign and outside China and suddenly a problem again. And so they were stripped of those martyr statuses if they, you know, people's relatives who'd passed away and uh, killed in the war. And then uh, following the end of the Cultural Revolution period, the end of the Mao era, they were then re-rehabilitated, if you like, complete kind of uh, swinging to and fro um, in a process which I think uh, you document well actually in, in all these places, but which is particularly noticeable in the Soviet case, uh, to use that as a, a sort of seg. So do you want to say something about the great patriotic war memory here? And it's also something that has really remarkably shifted over time. What, you know, what's what's happened there with Stalin's involvement and how what, who's responsible for the elevation of the war to its current status as a sort of religion? Yeah, I mean, it, so I, again, this this is something that I, when I first went to Russia and, and watched the the Victory Day celebrations, just sort of assumed this must have have always been like this. You know, it's it's so front and and center as a you know as a as a holiday in Russia, um, but that that really wasn't the case. Uh, Stalin, so he held a, a first victory parade right after the war in nineteen forty five. But quite quickly, he started to move against his own wartime leaders. So the, the Marshal um, Zhukov, who, who, who led that first parade, for instance, was was demoted and, and um, stripped of his his position. He and Stalin wanted to move away from commemoration of the war. So having um, having decided in in 1945 on the on the morning of, of what is known as Victory Day, May 9th, that this would be a national holiday to be celebrated annually. Two two years later, in December 1947, he cancels that holiday altogether. Um, There's very little explanation. There's just a short notice in a couple of the newspapers that says May 9th is now a normal working day. There will be a holiday on on New Year's Day instead. And what's going on there is that he was quite concerned that by building up these these military leaders, I guess a little bit like like as as Mao was with with Chiang Kai Shek, that they might attract too much attention, they might get too much glory and prestige in their own right. In the case of Stalin, who was wholly paranoid, he was concerned they could become a threat to his own leadership. So he hadn't fought, and if you had these great frontline commanders. Um, being being celebrated as, as war heroes every year, perhaps they could become a, a threat to his own leadership. It was also, you know, it did not feel triumphant. You know, the 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 country had been utterly devastated. Um, there was real suffering. There was famine again. Stalin didn't want to focus on the the horrors and the and the trauma of the war and all of the rewards that he couldn't offer. You know, people had been fighting and, and dying for, for, for four years. And now what was there? You know, they were, they were coming back to, to homes and, and lives that, that, that were destroyed. Um, so he wanted them to, to move on from the war. There, there's a, a, a directive from his um, 
propagandist Andrei Zhdanov, I think in, in 1946, saying that people should be dissuaded from, quote, taking some time off to recover from the war. The idea was that they needed to get back to work, to get back, back to building the cause uh, of socialism. So, so the war story really starts to get downplayed and the individual commanders are, are taken out of it and Victory Day just becomes a, a normal working day. And it's not till 1965 and Lena Brezhnev's time that they reinstate the Victory Day holiday. So, you know, there, there was some chance and, and some happenstance. So he, he takes over after the after the ouster of Khrushchev and is really looking for, you know, what are, what, how can we rally popular support behind the party? So it was then almost half a century um, from the from the Bolshevik revolution. The horrors of Stalin's rule were, were still fresh and, and clear in, in people's minds. You know, Lenin was still um, was still a very central and prominent figure, and, and the historian Nina Tamarkin has written extensively about the cult of Lenin that, that Brezhnev then and dusted off, um, and also tried to attract support behind. But Lenin didn't really capture the popular imagination and, and generate real emotion in the way that the memory of the of the war did. So Brezhnev brought back Victory Day. He built the new, um, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier that, that many people will have seen outside the Kremlin wall, had had the had the remains of a soldier exhumed from the site of the Battle of Moscow and, and interred in the new um, memorial of, of the Unknown Soldier. But I think what was most striking to me is this a, a ceremony that I describe in the book where they then transported a portion of the eternal flame from the martyr cemetery in St. Petersburg in inside an armored personnel carrier all the way to Moscow and used that flame. So the flame that commemorated the revolutionary martyrs to light the new eternal flame at the tomb of the unknown soldier and, and the Moscow party boss gives a speech about how these the, the ranks of these of these various um legions, the, the, the revolutionaries um, from 1917 and, and now the, the, the Soviet forces during the Great Patriotic War would, would close ranks and, and defend um, the, the party and its, and its place in history. So it, it really felt like both a, you know, a, a symbolic and an actual passing off of the torch and a clear decision to, to turn to the wartime history mm-hmm. and, and and use that wartime history to to generate support for the for the party, which it which it really badly needed. So he's he's the first leader who who builds what's been described as the cult of the great great patriotic war. Um, introduces new new systems of, of patriotic education, uh, presides over the, the building of a, a huge number of of monuments and memorials, and really turns back to the wartime history um, mm. as a as a key symbol to to rally the country behind. Mm. Well, I wonder. I mean, if we we'll stay, we could stay there on on the kind of Russia, Russia case because you document this kind of this toing and froing extremely, extremely well. And uh, late, a bit later in the book, you, you discuss then uh, the subsequent period after Brezhnev and, and the Gorbachev era and the sort of vastness in this kind of description or this uh, dismantling of some of these uh, kind of rigid interpretations and a de- and a desire for exploration of history. Um, of course. Uh, at that exact time, uh, a certain figure who now leads Russia was growing up and I guess was uh, conditioned to be understanding some of these things. So um, do you think his sort of the fact that Putin was, the, a, a, you know, growing uh, up and, and being acculturated to this Brezhnev era uh, war memory and then experienced the uh, Gorbachev times, uh, I guess, more more chaotic, more kind of 
um, unpredictable and, and, and less ultimately, of course, uh, good for most people on a material level. Do you think that had some bearing on, on his sort of attitude and approach, maybe what he was inclined to draw on uh, in, in shoring up his own power later on? That's a bit of a speculative question. Who knows what his brain is doing? But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly if we if we look at what he has said about it and with all, you know, the, the caveats that, that clearly he's, you know, he's not the most reliable of narrators, um, but he has described himself as a, a pure and utterly successful product of, of Soviet patriotic education. And um, so he was 12 when Victory Day was reintroduced, uh, just just starting high school, and he would have been he would have been going through his teenage years just as the commemoration of the war um, was was reaching his height, and he would have he one would presume did receive some of this some of this patriotic education as part of his as part of his schooling. I, th- I think there there's both you know the, the wider national picture, and then as as there is for for, for many Russians, there's the personal story and the personal links he has with with the war he's talked extensively about his father's own service how he was wounded behind enemy lines how his his older brother died um during the siege of leningrad and how his, how his mother very nearly also died so he so he both has gone through the patriotic education system but but does have these personal links to the war and it, i think the experience he had of the of the Glasnost and, and Perestroika years were very different for for many people. You know, for a start, he wasn't in the Soviet Union for for most of that time. He he had gone abroad to and, and was posted in Dresden for the KGB. And I think his experience of of that time and certainly of seeing the Soviet collapse was was great. You know, humiliation, chaos, personal threat. You know, he he recounts in his um, you know clearly hagiographical um, memoirs type type interview uh, book that came out in 2000, how, you know, protesters gathered outside the KGB building in, in Dresden and, and he feared they were going to overrun the building. So his experience of, of the reform years was, was, was very bad. Um, and he saw it as a, as a loss of power. He, he talks in his own writing about experiencing, you know, the protesters at the gate and, and calling for support from a, a local Soviet barracks and being told they can't do anything without orders from Moscow and Moscow is silent. So I think witnessing that that collapse of, of power and resolving that, that that would never be the case, you know, it, it's it's reasonable to it to assume that those that those have played into how he now exercises power. But he he really seizes he seizes on the history of the war, but it's also difficult to see what you know there weren't many options. You know, when when he comes to to power in in December, nineteen ninety nine, you know, there was the, you know, the the Soviet Union had had just collapsed. Um, the the space there was the space race, but ultimately that had even that had been lost um, to to the United States. Stalin's memory was was um, was was difficult and complicated because it was associated with with the repression and, and the and the atrocities. Um, so, you know, the, the revolution was, was tricky because you didn't want to, as he's still, he's still careful about how he commemorates the, you know, the, the centenary of the, of the Bolshevik revolution passed with, with barely a whisper in Russia uh, because he's not keen to linger on the idea of the masses taking to the streets and, uh, and overthrowing a, a corrupt uh, imperial elite. Um, so, so there aren't a great deal of, of options to, to look at. And then, you know, so there's the victory in the war, and and that's what he 
from the earliest days of his presidency, two days after his inauguration, he leads his first Victory Day um, event. And the war allows him to paint this picture of a Russia that that he wants to live in and that many people are receptive to hearing, that that Russia is this great, ever victorious, um, heroic nation that secured this great victory in the last century and will be victorious again. Um, But of course, it needs a a strong leader um, like, like, like Vladimir Putin um, to take the reins, so the the past really serves his purposes, but he also the, there weren't many many good options. Yeltsin had had tried and failed to find he held a, a competition for to find a new a new national idea um, in the mid nineteen nineties and came up and came up empty handed. Um, so Putin seized on the history of the war, and he has and he has and he has kept, continued to seize on, on the history of the war and amplify that narrative over more than two decades now in power. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's tempting to say. I don't know if this really holds up because probably the history or, or experience of any significant group of people, probably beyond ten people, is very complicated and multi-layered. But there's something, especially in the Chinese and Russian case, which uh, you know, kind of that the as you say, the options are few to draw on. But that must have, maybe have something to do with the fact that these are vast kind of Eurasian, you know, continental landmasses involving countless different kinds of people, different events on different scales happening, obviously now also over a long span of time. And so finding a simple story out of any of that is immensely difficult. Um, One thing that uh, you mentioned there too about Putin's experiences and the kind of idea of the chaos and the weakness that was experienced, I guess, uh, you know, in in his, uh, I guess, young or mid-early adulthood um, is, is... a sense of a sense of threat, a sense of external victimhood, and this is something you draw attention to throughout. Um, but in particular, I guess in relation to China, uh, if we return there, um, and so uh, I just wonder, maybe in the Chinese case or, or more generally, what's your sense of how these victim narratives coexist with uh, narratives of, of victory? Because you know they might be perceived to be sort of self contradictory uh, in some ways, both simultaneously weak and preyed upon, but also gloriously victorious like how, how do you see that playing out i guess in china in particular but elsewhere too yeah I, that's a great way to put it um i think it, it is contradictory um they are trying to maintain two ideas simultaneously which is that these are great glorious mighty countries that can that can um they can never be defeated, um, but also that they've suffered terribly, um, that they're under tremendous threat. So they're they're both simultaneously great, glorious, and under um, endless, uh, endless existential, uh, endless existential threat. And I think they, the the where you see that come to a head in, in China is in the aftermath of the uh, Tiananmen crackdown when. Deng Xiaoping identifies the, the the core failing. He says the you know the greatest mistake we we've made is in our ideological education that we didn't do a good enough job of telling people what what China was like in the old days and what kind of country it was to become. They felt that they had gotten the balance wrong that they had focused too much on the victorious story of Mao's revolution and perhaps made that seem inevitable. And perhaps made the you know the the growth of the economy and and the opportunities that that were starting to 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 come to to people's real lives in China um, seemed like that was always going to happen. And he felt like they had not done a good enough job of explaining what it was like before the the Communist Party 
took power. So they made this really clear decision to focus on China's past victimhood and to focus on on um, national humiliation and particularly what they, what they call the century of humiliation that the country had suffered um, before the rise of, of the Communist Party, which I'm sure many listeners will, will know, but begins with the with the opium wars of the 19th century and culminates in the Japanese invasion at, at the start of the, the the Second World War, when when China is portrayed as being just you know preyed upon, carved apart, suffering terribly at the hands of all of all these foreign powers, and the blame for that is placed on their weak, corrupt imperial leadership. So the moral of that story and the broader historical narrative is that China must have the Communist Party's leadership if it's to be strong, safe, safe and prosperous. So they, they are trying to keep those two ideas in, in mind at the same time, that this is a, this is a great um, a great country with a, with a noble, glorious history, but that it has faced devastating threats before. And that if the Communist Party ever falls from power, it could end up back there again. So I think that the slogan that they were really pushing in 2021 around the, the centenary of, of the Communist Party's founding was without the CCP, there would be no new China. This this mm-hmm. idea that if the Communist Party, um, you know, the Communist Party is acting in China's interests and that it, if it is ever overthrown, China will be, will be a, a great peril once again. Mm. Which again sits interestingly with the uh... The sort of rehabilitation of the the Guomindang of the of the nationalists, uh, you know, they're, they're, I mean, you don't get any prizes for pointing out small inconsistencies in some of these things because the whole point in them is that they're quite general and quite broad. Well, yeah, I, I remember I asked a, a North Korean defector about that because it seemed to me there's this totally nonsensical um, part in the story where where Kim, how could it be? I was asking him that Kim Il Sung, you know, liberates the Korean Peninsula and and freedom is is has come to all of the land and then you know, the, the peninsula is divided between north and south um if it was kim who liberated the korean peninsula how did he allow or you know how did the peninsula come come to be divided and um this gentleman told me we just we're not we're not taught to think like that we are not these stories are not to be examined and, and analyzed and, and we're not meant to look for the for the contradictions it's just to be understood here is the here is the the form of events the, the dates these key things happened and so while it might seem it just logically seems it seems seems improbable that one day the Korean Peninsula was liberated and free and the next minute it was divided in, in two with no further battles being fought. Um, it, it doesn't matter. That's 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 the story, and that's what you're required to to repeat. Right, and you you kind of uh, conclude, or, or towards the end of the book, uh, explore more the um, particular ways that that record of Kim Il Sung's, and then of, with the bridging period of Kim Jong Il, has been uh, explored or mobilized in a in a in another context, right? A hereditary context of Kim Jong Un now being in power. The kind of connections even to the level of uh, similarities in physical appearance that have been made between uh, between the current current leadership in North Korea and that and that record um, but actually that point you made uh, leads me to one of my one of my last questions basically um, you're discussing there that you know the, the particular way that ordinary people uh, come to understand these things and the extent to which they may or may not you know uh, how much credence these ideas have as far as ordinary people are concerned and of course there are aspects of the stories themselves, the content of how, th- how you're taught, but also the broader climate uh, in which these ideas are shared. So 
uh, of course, the cases are very different. Not Russia, China, North Korea, they're sociologically, they're kind of demographically, they're, they're very different in many ways. And the pluralism that is there in different ideas, even now, even despite the similarities, is, is very different. Um, uh, but in order to understand these things, as you say, in a more textured way than is often assumed, we do have to understand the, the role of ordinary people, what, what may appeal or otherwise about some of these uh, historical narratives uh, and how much support there might actually be for any of these uh, people in power. So how do you get through that kind of complicated question about where people get their, you know, how much do people support? Does it matter? Uh, is it more of a bottom up? Is it more of a top down process? We can't ignore ordinary people altogether, obviously. Uh, in fact, I mean, uh, my background's in anthropology, so can't ignore them at all. They're the only people that matter, really. <laughs> but anyway, how do, how do you understand the role of uh, sort of citizens in this these processes? Yeah, I mean, I explore this in, in some detail um, in in the book. The role of, of individual, both both um, citizens and and historians, in pushing back against these narratives. So it's important to be clear that while you know the the, the state is is giving its version of history and, and making it very difficult and very dangerous now now to challenge that, that doesn't mean that everyone who hears that is automatically you know. The, converted believes the believes the regime's version of events um, and accepts that that history of fact there are there are you know many brave individuals who are who are pushing back and who and who are suffering as a consequence and actually the, the title of the book dancing on bones comes from a quote from a, a russian activist who had who was who felt that the, the way the war was being commemorated on putin had become this sort of triumphalist bombastic um, celebration every year on on May 9th and he felt that we had lost the memory of the real people and individuals who who fought so he started this movement that he called the Immortal Regiment where they would just march quietly holding photographs of relatives who had died in the war and the the idea was to put real people um, and and more of a sort of somber um, reflection back into the the commemoration of, of the end of the war and the, the movement was was massively successful. Um, they they had thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people wanting to take part. And so, of course, um, the authorities couldn't couldn't have this grassroots movement um, running out out with its its control. So the, uh, uh, they they co opted it. They they um, came up with a, a they called it the Immortal Regiment of Russia parallel movement, which which quickly subsumed the original. And now that it's this extraordinary event that, that Putin, uh, before the pandemic restrictions anyway, Putin marches at, at the front of the event holding a picture of his his own father. It has become everything the founders didn't want. And and this and this um, one of the original founders when he's talking about it says that you know the authorities are are dancing on bones that you know we, we should just stop and remember the individual people people who fought but they're you know they're they're abusing this history and they're and they're dancing on bones. So I wanted to try to try and capture the way that this history is being used but also the resistance and, and the grassroots um, pushback to that. And in, in terms of whether people believe the history or or not. I mean, I think one of the points I came out to in the book is that partly what makes this so so effective, and and you know, with the caveat that, that these systems are different, some portion of the population is is genuinely persuaded. You know, there some portion of the of the North Korean population genuinely does believe Kim Il Sung liberated the peninsula staved off an extraordinary attack um, in the Korean War and that they're lucky to have the, the Kims as leaders. But 
for those citizens who, who don't, and certainly, you know, there is reason to believe that, that, that there are a number of the population who don't agree with the Kim's rule and, and who do feel that, you know, there, there are real problems that, that emanate from it. The problem becomes that you can't express that publicly, that, that discourse, propaganda becomes a, a tool of, of power. You know, the, the, if people are know what is expected of them and they can only express certain limited views um, in public, it's very difficult to know whether you're in the minority or, or not, whether a significant number of people um, agrees with you that, that this this history um, doesn't add up and, and that you and that you don't support the leadership if all you if all you're allowed to do in public is express your undying support. So mm. I mean I would I had the experience in North Korea of, of you know speaking to people face to face, you know, in the, in their own homes and seeing their eyes well with tears and just not and thinking, I just have no way to know, do you genuinely believe what you're telling me right now, which is that you're, you know, you're grateful from the from the bottom of the heart, from the bottom of your heart for the Kim's um, leadership and sacrifices for the country? Or do you just understand that that's the only view you can you can give, particularly to a foreign journalist who's accompanied by you know, a gentleman to one side, a gentleman to the other side, who are, who are writing down everything you're saying and, mm. and know where, where you live and, and what your name is? So... It, it's a sort of two-fold strategy where if it can generate genuine support, and you know, there, there's evidence in Russia now um, with you know, some, some of the um, list experiments that, that people are doing that, that there is genuinely majority support for, for the war, that there is buy-in to this narrative that they're fighting fascists and, and Nazis in Ukraine. But even if you don't believe that, as long as the propaganda is all-encompassing enough, it's impossible to say, to say otherwise. So it gives the impression of widespread public support, whether that is how people feel individually about the leaders or, or not. Mm. Well, I guess, uh, you know, in, in, in these conditions of particular power dynamics, and power is the title of, of the conclusion, the key, uh, key term in the title of the book, is co- of course, too, maybe belief or not belief isn't really actually the most relevant or helpful question in that sense, you know, that the kind of, in fact, even wondering what individual people believe is uh, over time might be considered a sort of individualistic Western view or a bourgeois uh, pre- sort of uh, preoccupation. Um, but just to, to kind of finish then, I, I mean, uh, as a final question, you've looked over the sort of long durée at lots of uh, these sort of shifts in narratives. And given what you've said uh, about the sheer um, kind of power and, and um, monotony, if you like, or, or homogeneity of these historical narratives as they are now, kind of increasingly enforced or as enforced as ever in the North Korean case, perhaps. Um, do you see this as just the latest sort of turn in a sort of or latest swing in a pendulum process of openness and, and, and restriction? Because those broad dynamics are at play, at least in Russia and China. And what's your sense of how, uh, what, what, what kind of prospects might there be in future for people who've been educated under such a sort of historical regime to, th- to think about things in a different way should you know the political environment change in any of these places based based on previous examples of changes occurring you know back into the 20th century and the late 20th early 21st centuries yeah i mean it's certainly possible that that these stories could change i think if a, if a fundamental fundamentally different regime um, came to came to power and and allowed a more critical analysis of these stories certainly they would not be the sort of very glorious triumphalist um, and sort of all-consuming all narratives that that they are currently 
I think the, the problem is that it new leaders will have the same problem these leaders have had of, well, what do you base your claim to power on? And perhaps, you know, if that's a, if that's a, you know, let's suspend disbelief and say that Navalny comes to power in, in, in Russia, you know, perhaps his, perhaps the founding myth becomes about defeating Putinism and, and um, he has his own um, liberal democratic founding myth, although I think probably would be quite skeptical um, of, of what the what the reality would be. You know, it's possible to change the story, and it, and it's possible to you know, Ukraine's national story is is being rewritten in real time as as we speak. You know, the, the founding myth of the Ukrainian identity for for the coming generations is now going to be built on its resistance to Russia. Um, so these stories can change, but I think the more likely scenario is that whoever comes next will will similarly look out over the over the course of, of, of recent history, look at the options and decide that, that the wartime narrative, you know, perhaps you want to perhaps you want to change aspects of, of the story and, and um, emphasize different elements. But the wartime narrative and the ability to appeal to to, to nationalism is the is the main insurance policy for, for whoever for whoever comes next, you know, if they, if you have access to extraordinary economic growth and you can point to to great, you know, a sudden in, in influx of prosperity and, and opportunity for your citizens, you can absolutely make that an important part of your of your national story. But you know, as we're also seeing here in the West, when the when the economic times get harder, when growth isn't assured, when when people aren't aren't certain about the future delving back in into the past and these and these glorious stories of, of the past and if needed you know the the idea that that there are enemies once again at, at the gates and the country needs to um circle the circle circle around the leaders and and stand up to these threats you know those are the real potent narratives that i think you know what one one consistent feature of the book is that you know time and again the, that's the lever that that leaders have have reached for is is the past and how the how the past can shape and, and cement their their current claims to power. So the, the stories can change, um, but I think we should be prepared for these stories to be a, a key part of the of the national narratives of, of these countries for you know for the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether that's a uh, an optimistic prognostication or not, but uh, at the very least, as you say, uh, they encourage anyone in any other setting outside these places to reflect on how some of these kinds of processes are far from alien uh, within our own societies too. Um, But anyway, Casey, optimistic or otherwise, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast today. It was great speaking to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, Before you go, I guess I'll just ask uh, what you're working on currently. Do you have other writing projects on the go? Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, what's following up from this uh, excellent book? Um, I have... um thinking through a few sort of bigger ideas um my my primary uh, focus right now is I, I i joined the new statesman magazine um in in january of, of this year um a publication i've long admired so i'm so i'm focused on it on a daily basis right now on 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 writing for the new statesman and, and really focusing on 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 china but also on, on russia and and the war in ukraine so the so there's plenty to write about but it, it really does I, I feel like we are at an important point in history and perhaps people always always feel like this but i think some of the issues that you know 
I, I know you all, you also look at in, in terms of, of how how the world is how the world is shaping up and these these battles of ideas between autocracies and democracies. You know, there there are really there are really key issues now at stake, and I think focusing on on China and Russia and and, and North Korea too. You know, the 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 certainty that we have perhaps um, nurtured here here in the West about the future of, of liberal democracy. You know, that's not how much how a lot of the world um, sees sees the the present and the future. Um, so there's so there's plenty plenty to to, to write about um, and, and look into more detail. Certainly. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, listeners would. Uh, do well to uh, look at your other your other output as well, um, journalistic and 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 written in, in, in other venues too. So uh, I would encourage them to do that. Um, thanks once again, Katie, and uh, thank you, listeners, too, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast uh, channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>